Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Tulsans will have an opportunity to see two of playwright Dominique Mauricio's plays in her Detroit trilogy this weekend and next, as two theater companies are producing the bookend plays of her trilogy that depict life and the issues of this iconic American city and its black population, a story that spans the last half of the 20th century. Paradise Blues, set around 1950, is being presented by Theater North. It is set in a jazz club and follows the musician club owner as he debates his future and that of his business. And then American Theater Company will present Skeleton Crew, set in the early 2000s as one of the last large factories in Detroit, the key to the city's growth, is shutters its doors and with it opportunities for its workers. My guests today are the directors of the productions, Robert Walters for Theater North's Paradise Blues and Keith Daniels for American Theater Company's Skeleton Crew. Both are African-American directors in a season that has offered unprecedented opportunities for both black actors and especially black directors in our city. Paradise Blue continues with performances Saturday evening and Sunday afternoon, and Skeleton Crew opens on March 3rd. Both are at the Tulsa Performing Arts Center, and they're my guests today on Studio Tulsa. Robert and Keith, welcome to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. This is a really interesting time. Uh, you're both directing plays by Dominique Moriso, who is kind of on a hot streak, at least when it comes to Tulsa Productions. You have two of the, the Detroit trilogy that'll be performed in the next month. And then the in the following month, uh, Celebrity Attractions is uh, bringing her musical, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, to Tulsa. What is interesting about her particular work and how it speaks to you, Robert? I think that a lot of the things that she's talking about specifically deal with a lot that's going on in African-American communities across the country. As I read both plays, I could see one parallels to each other, but also a lot of what's going on in those plays are specifically kind of speaking to what's happening in the Tulsa area as well. And I feel like she really has her hand on kind of the pulse of the moment. And key for you? I just think the way she handles working class, like black folks, the way she can really speak through their voices, I think the way she develops characters are so like true to life that it's just, it's, it's inspiring. In both cases, and you're directing plays from the Detroit trilogy, it is a sort of a time capsule of moments in Detroit's history which has a very rich African-American history. And I think uh, your point, Robert, in Paradise Blue, this is sort of the heyday for emerging African-American culture in Detroit. It is becoming increasingly prosperous because there's work for everyone handling, you know, factory work, the auto factory work. And this is a particular time, but there are still issues within Detroit as Detroit works through its own racial issues in trying to accommodate this growing affluence of this African-American class that migrated from the South. Yeah, the story of um, Black Bottom Detroit is really remarkable. Um, in you know the 19-teens, there wasn't really that many black families there. Uh, as soon as you get to about 1940, you've got 100,000 black people inhabiting this area with 300 prosperous black businesses and uh, really very quickly became a hotbed of African-American activity. In our play, we look at all the black clubs that opened up and uh, how it became the center for the movement, the bebop movement, and um, just a lot of really amazing things happening there. 
And um, as we find from our own Tulsa history, you know, sometimes people have a problem with that. And it really what reached its heyday about that time, and that is also coincides with the time when people in the government started to create plans to eradicate that success and for which they were successful doing. Everything from the interstate highways to urban renewal to real estate uh, districts that would either exclude African Americans mm-hmm. or change the type of uh, community that existed within a, a given area. I think that's sort of central to Paradise Blue. It is. And um, one of the things that is fascinating about the play is so frequently in history we talk about uh, what's happening, what are the external factors that are coming against the black community. Uh, however, while that is an element in this play, it's really about the internal factors. And how is it, one of the questions that we ask is how is it that we maintain community? How is it that we keep each other accountable? And so we look at it from both those angles, but mainly looking at it from the perspective of what's happening in the community to maintain it. Now, by the time of Skeleton Crew, which is set in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. you're dealing with sort of the end of this great contract and era of black employment in the great automobile industry within Detroit. And Skeleton Crew actually refers to, you know, a closing of a factory, thousands of workers being idled, families that have been able to buy houses, sort of participate in the American dream. All of a sudden, this is ending for that generation and for the generation that sort of hopefully was going to follow in their footsteps. It's never going to happen. Yeah, I uh, I think Dominique does a great job of portraying, like, just the entire mood and vibe of Detroit around that time. I mean, when you think of Detroit, think of Motown, Motor City, you know, music and cars, the automobile industry. You could get the sense from Skeleton Crew that, oh, this is a dying city. This is a poorly managed city. This is a city with a lot of infrastructure and resource problems that, sting, uh, uh, that, that stings to beyond just the auto um, auto industry, right? Yeah. It, it, it will trickle off into maybe homelessness, into uh, gambling, into other factors that it could lead to. So I, I feel that she does a great job in getting that that sense of urgency of this dying uh, auto plant. Is it the same with Skeleton Crew that uh, while these external factors play a role, it's really about the internal factors that are play for your characters? Yeah, for That's sure. the main the main. Uh, yeah, with some of those things I just named, there's a lot of, you see a huge distinction between like, what would you call like black middle class and the character of Reggie versus like Dez, who is a lower class or Faye, who is a lower class or even Shanita. And you just see the mindset difference. And these are the various characters. Yes, the yes. There's only four main characters in, in Skeleton Crew. So. Yeah. And the premise is they're working at the factory after the factory closes to mm-hmm. sort of clean up. Yeah, well, they find out during, like, you find out very early on in the first act that the plan is indeed closing. The other, more more of the main characters, three of them don't know that. So basically, it's just kind of struggle of, how do I tell them? How does this news break? And then once, you know, the news finally does, you know, all, you know, H-E-L-L breaks <laughs> loose, you know? <laughs> so it, uh, it then becomes a, a struggle of survival, and everybody's worried about themselves, but there is some humanity to it because you are you do have characters who fear for other characters. And even Reggie, who fears for his... Because he's walking this very thin line between company man and am I part of the people, right? So mm-hmm. it's a huge internal struggle for him. And 
for other characters, it's more a simplistic survival struggle of where I'm going to get my next meal. So, so what about this particular play really speaks to you and, and to how people are experiencing life today? I guess you're coming out of the pandemic. You have this growing inequality. You see inequality in schools and a growing sense of inequality in so many areas. Does that sort of speak to you? This play helps you speak to our contemporary times? I think it definitely does. I mean, at the end of the day, characters like Reggie just want the same thing that Americans today want, is to provide for their family, to, to get a house, to, to put their kids through school, hopefully. And these are real problems, not just black problems. These are American problems. Yeah. And if you <laughs> have no uh, foundation or no true sense of ownership or no true sense of a solid foundation financially to live on, you can really be crippled easily. Most people are paycheck to paycheck, and that's what these folks are, paychecks to paycheck. I think that's very relatable, not only in my life, but uh, to a lot of people here today. And, and you're dealing with a much earlier era uh, in Paradise Blue, Robert, but it sounds like there are still contemporary issues that are speaking from this historical standpoint in the play? Certainly. Um, just a lot of just universal issues. Um, so mainly it's it's this club that all the characters kind of inhabit. Um, either there's some musicians who are there who play at the club, there's the club owner, there's uh, uh, his girlfriend, and then there's like kind of a mysterious character who comes in who has heard that the club might be up for sale. So uh, the thing about the main character, Blue, is that he's kind of a tortured musician. <laughs> but um, he really has aspirations of leaving Detroit and going somewhere else. Uh, he, he sees the grass as being greener. But what he's not really thinking about is how him leaving the club, since he's the club owner, how that's going to affect the lives of everybody else around him. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with him wanting to aspire to something else. But the idea that he might sell the club, not to somebody in the community, but outside of the community, knowing that there's the potential that the club could get raised along with all the other clubs, he doesn't really think about that. Um, he's really kind of thinking about himself. And, you know, from a certain standpoint, there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of trying to maintain a community, a thriving community, especially when the selling of the club could mean the end of that community, is, um, it's a tough one. But we talk about those issues. Um, a lot of the other characters uh, we, we talk about, there is this kind of dichotomy of, of female characters from that time. Uh, especially when you go back and look at movies from that time, there's either kind of like the, uh, you know, there's the, the character's really wholesome, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you kind of have like that whore-type character. Yeah. And by the end of the play, you know, we see that neither character is either. There's just, the, there's, there's so much more alike than, you know, than we realize at first. Mm. Um, uh, there's uh, some issues of abuse in the play. A lot of things that really kind of speak to the moment in addition to all of the things with regards to the community staying intact. And, you know, even with regards to us looking at in the Tulsa community, now that we have all this national recognition from, you know, what has historically happened here, how do we maintain that community? You know, I think we had like 26,000 people come move to Tulsa last year. How do we continue to respect those communities and still tell people, hey, it's okay to move here? Right. It's okay to consider Tulsa. These are issues that we're struggling with right now. Right, exactly. When when you're looking at areas that a good portion of the city would never consider living, and then all of a sudden now this has become a desirable area to be in, Right. what does that do to the, the existing community and the community that might be economically forced out? Mm -hmm. 
My guests today are Robert Walters, who is directing Theater North's production of Paradise Blue. Keith Daniel uh, will be directing American Theater Company's production of Skeleton Crew. And that will open on March 3rd. Paradise Blue concludes its run this weekend at the Tulsa Performing Arts Center. And both of those plays are part of the Detroit trilogy by Dominique Morisot. And interesting that you've got this arc with these three plays. You have this beginning narrative, which deals with you know, this idea, am I going to be a part of this, this community? Am I going to maintain this community? Or I'm going to take steps to look for myself first and maybe abandon that community. Uh, Skeleton Crew kind of comes at the end of this long line of actions in Detroit. And the middle play in this trilogy, which is sounds pretty powerful too, it's Detroit 1967, which was the year of the riots. You know, you get into issues of policing and what happens to that community when it's literally destroyed through mob action in, in a way. So you've got this really interesting arc that's at play. What, is, what, is, what do you guys think the overall story that Dominique is telling through these three plays? Keith? I think uh, she's showing the heart of Detroit and the Detroit's people, especially uh, black folks in Detroit, um, especially as black writers, we want to share the experience of black people the best way we know how through our respective art forms. And I think she's done a great job, especially with Skeleton Crew, of highlighting that ending factor of, uh, of where it all ended for socially, uh, socially and economically for a lot of black people in Detroit. And doing a great job of showing that the city itself is dying and is dying from the inside and is dying by losing its people and losing some of the most influential people to American history, which is Detroit people uh, who've created some of the most like iconic, not just in music, but cars and, and, and other things. And I think she's showing the sad, almost trilogy of it, of the course of this city that was once this huge bustling place. How is less than a million people there today? You yeah. know, so. mm-hmm. And what you see on the efforts to rebuild within, it's a very different rebuilding than it was to begin with. Right. Yeah. Right. No, and, and Robert, what's what's your thought of this overall arc of the trilogy? You know, it kind of reminds me of um, August Wilson's ten play cycle, mm-hmm. and uh, in that she's covering the life of what. Whereas he was covering kind of like the life of what was going on in, in mainly in um, Pittsburgh, yeah, in Pittsburgh, right? She's really doing the same thing, but for Detroit. There are even some scenes, some things which remind me of some of his plays, even. But, uh, yeah, she's really kind of taken a hard eye at this particular community and then how in each era she's boiling it down to some very particular factors that are affecting the community during that time. And um, what I like about the the plays is that even in reading our two plays, there are scenes which harken back to one of the earlier plays or one of the Mm. later plays. And um, I think it's fascinating how she creates that through line so that you can sit and enjoy them all and... And realize, oh, okay, that's just like this scene which happened in another one. Um, really, really great work. I love, whereas I love the characters in Paradise Blue, the dialogue in Skeleton Crew is amazing. Yeah. yeah. It is. It's one of my favorite parts of it. And what's really nice is you have this sort of, I mean, it, was it a coincidence or was there some coordination between American Theater Company and, and Theater North to sort of present these two plays? Or was it just serendipity? It was more of a happy accident. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, I had been working with ATC for a while and really wanted to get 
Keith in because I recognized a really talented guy. We worked together um, years ago. Um, and you've directed him before. Right, 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 right. Keith went to the University of Tulsa, just yeah. like I did. So we kind of have the same training. So we were kind of thinking about what plays might he be interested in directing over at, at ATC. And um, we went through a list, and Skeleton Crew was, was one of the ones that he was interested in doing. And I think it was, I was kind of set to, you know, help him in any way he needed with our production. And in the meantime, I was approached by Theater North. Yeah, Maybell, talk to you. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I'd always wanted to work with Maybell Wallace. Yeah. Um, she approached me about directing Paradise Blue. And then it didn't take that long for me to realize that there was a link between the two plays. So I just thought that was awesome how that turned out. I want to hear from you just about the specifics of your play and maybe some of the people that are being part of your cast. But first, I want to maybe sort of step back a moment because really in our uh, theatrical community, this is sort of an interesting time. I mean, I think, uh, Robert, you were telling me that maybe this has probably been the richest time for uh, black directors, black performers to be performing in the city stages. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I, I can remember, you know, probably like five, eight years ago, they're not really being that many of us uh, that were directing shows, uh, certainly. And this year, I think we hit a watershed moment. I think there are nine black directors who have been associated with productions this year. That's and amazing. that's, it's amazing. Um, and uh, Justin Daniels. Yeah, that's my cousin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is uh, have, having auditions this week for, for a, a show um, of his that's coming up. And uh, so I just think it's a really great time. I feel like um, the the plays that we've been directing to, they're not all just specific to like the African-American community. We've right. been fortunate to do that. But also there are plays that have nothing to do with the African-American experience. It's to do more with the American experience or the human experience. And I think it's just amazing that uh, Tulsa has reached that point where we can show our works in that particular way. Uh, a small statistic. Uh, I think it was year 2006, seven. I performed in uh, PAC in an all-black cast uh, directed by Tyrone Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. The play was called Blue. Right. At the time, that was the first all-black cast, including a, a black director, in, in over 10 years. Yeah. So it's, I, I believe it. So it, you go from there to now to having almost 10 black productions or black-ran productions. Mm-hmm. So I would have to agree to now if you're, you're a creator out there and you're thinking of jumping into um, direction and, and theater, I think now in Tulsa is a perfect time. Like, there, there is a platform. You think something's changed or this is just there's a collection of talent or do you think there's a overdue reckoning that certain stories aren't being told and certain perspectives and telling stories are not being heard? I think there is a, there's a whole lot of talent in town right now. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a whole lot of homegrown talent in town. And I feel like... We are interested in telling all kinds of stories. Yeah. And I know, generally speaking, I, I've told more stories that aren't necessarily tied to the African-American experience than I have. Um, but I feel like now there is more of an openness to hearing more um, stories from the African-American experience. Yesterday we just had a matinee, and it was um, a pretty good mix of people who are watching it. So just to see that there are so many people that are still interested in this play that is, you know, focused on the black community and, and our issues um, is, was enlightening. So, yeah, it's a talent and, and stories. And progression in general, you know, I think as we just, 
we progress and we get older, new faces, new generations come, and maybe this new crop of creators are a lot more diverse than previous crops. Mm-hmm. Well, Keith, uh, I know your play doesn't open for another week mm-hmm. or so, but uh, tell us a little about the people that are part of uh, Skeleton Crew, which opens March 3rd. Yes, yes. I have a big shout out to Lori Bryan over there at American Theater Company. Um, I have a great cast, man. It's a four-person cast, a very, very a small cast, but very intimate we have Troy Nalls, who plays the character of Reggie. Uh, we have Isaiah Hamstrand, who plays the character of Dez. Samara Kane plays the character of Shanita. And Odie Lisa Brown plays the character of Faye, who is really the central piece to this, to this story. She truly holds the heart of the story and pushes, is the driving force of everything. So um, very... Uh, just excited to get this production out. I'm sorry. Can you tell me why she's the heart of the heart Yeah, of the she's play? the heart of the play because, I mean, she's like the drum. She's like the, the percussion, <laughs> you know, the, the drum beat, the heart. Without it, I mean, there is truly, like, no rhythm, no tempo. She sets the tone for uh, almost every scene. She's in almost every single scene except for maybe one. Um, so she really is the, I felt like Dominique, centered the story around her and i think i mean it's just it's just that plain simple the way it's written our character is just amazingly written the uh her dialogue is just spectacular uh it really reminds me of like i had a grandpa from detroit and it reminds me of like his paramount like 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 if he, if he was a girl like like it would be it would be fake yeah and and there are two more opportunities to see paradise blue uh saturday evening and sunday afternoon uh, tell us a little about the, the people in your show, uh, Robert. Uh, I have a dream team of actors. <laughs> um, sometimes when you hold auditions, you know, you're kind of looking around, you're like, how are we going to pull this off? Uh, and uh, then for me, the best productions I've ever done has been whoever comes into the room, like, oh, that's who that person is. So I've got a great cast of actors. Um, I've got uh, Obum Mukamam, who is the lead character, Blue. Uh, and then Ellie Evans plays uh, his girlfriend, Pumpkin. Even though it's called Blue's Paradise, I kind of sometimes think that Ellie might, that character Pumpkin might be the main character. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, are they very much, are both pieces very much ensemble pieces? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. No, yes. Okay. Completely. I'm sorry. I oh, no problem. Uh, then I've got uh, David Harris, uh, who plays Corn, the piano man. Um, then I have uh, Lex Sales, who plays... P. Sam, Percussion Sam, also a member of the band. And then there is this mysterious character named Silver, who's played by Kimberly Martin. Yeah. Well, mm. uh, we wish you success with uh, both of these uh, plays. Uh, you can see Paradise Blue uh, this weekend, Saturday evening and Sunday afternoon at the PAC. I think you're in the Dungeons Theater, mm-hmm. correct? And then Skeleton Crew opens uh, March 3rd. Yes, it does. And which theater are you also at the PAC? You're obviously yes. at the PAC. Yes, we're at the PAC as well. All right, well. Robert and Keith, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having thanks, us. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. My guests today have been Robert Walters, the director of Theater North's production of Paradise Blue, which will conclude its run this weekend with performances Saturday evening at 8 and Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock at the Tulsa Performing Arts Center. And Keith Daniels will be directing American Theater Company's production of Skeleton Crew. That opens March 3rd and runs through March 11th, also at the PAC. They're directing two plays of the Detroit Trilogy by Dominique Moriso. You can learn more about both productions at TulsaPAC.com. You're listening to Studio Tulsa. Here's the comments of Connie Cronley. 
What's it called when two things of opposing nature are true at the same time? Polarity? Like this story a hundred years ago in Tulsa. When I wrote the biography of Kate Barnard, I told about her social reform issues, why she was called the good angel of Oklahoma. One issue caused her political downfall. She was the only state official who took on the cause of Indian orphans whose properties were being plundered on a massive scale. Judges, attorneys, businessmen, legislatures, all stealing land, timber, and oil from the natives. In every way imaginable, fraud, swindle, forgery, bogus marriage, kidnapping, even murder. When Kate Barnard intervened, she was standing between the white establishment and millions of Indian money. To stop her, the legislature cut appropriations to her department, which shut it down. That was 1914. Well, recently I read a report made to Congress 10 years later, and the same unscrupulous grab for Indian properties had continued. This report named some prominent Tulsans. One way to get a deed or a lease for native property then was to kidnap a young Indian. The euphemistic term was spirit them away and hold them until they turned 18 and could sign the documents. That's what happened to Millie Naharki, a young girl with valuable creek allotments. Two prominent Tulsa oil men were vying for her land, Charles Page and Grant Stebbins. In 1922, just before her 18th birthday, Millie was spirited away to Missouri by two employees of Gladys Bell Oil Company. One of the men who kidnapped her raped her repeatedly. A prominent Tulsa attorney turned up with a fraudulent deed. Federal officials with the Office of Indian Affairs found them, returned Millie to Tulsa, and charged the men with malpractice, conspiracy, abduction, and fraud. The Gladys Bell Oil Company was owned by Grant Case Stebbins, who was first known as Dry Hole Stebbins because he drilled 28 dry holes before striking oil. But when he struck it big, he spent big on himself and to develop the city. He formed the first National Bank and Trust Company. He donated property for a Tulsa campus, persuaded Muskogee's Kendall College to relocate here, and it became the University of Tulsa. He developed a rich residential property, now known as Maple Ridge. His colonial revival mansion still stands on East 19th Street. He gave other Maple Ridge properties to U.S. Congressman Bird McGuire, and one to his daughter and son-in-law, Otis McClintic. Grant Stebbins was a towering figure in Tulsa history. Charles Page, who missed out on Millie's property, is revered for his Sand Springs Widows and Orphans Home. But more dark stories are surfacing about how he acquired his Indian leases. What happened with Millie's case? The charges against the men were reduced to supplying liquor to an Indian. Litigation over her property dragged on for a decade. She fought continually with her legal guardian at First National Bank over the small monthly allowance they doled out to her for basics. She married, had two children, and died in her simple little house in West Tulsa, virtually blind, bitter, and almost penniless. A federal official at the time called the story of little Millie Naharki 
one of the most revolting cases in the history of the Indian service. One of the cases. We're learning more about Tulsa history, a city built on native land, but who built it and how? It's tempting to label the oil men as villains for the way they acquired the leases. Thomas Gilchrist, Charles Page, Grant Stebbins, others. How much did they know, delegate, choose not to know? Were they Tulsa's version of the robber barons of the Gilded Age? Things that can seem unforgivable to us now were more commonplace then. We as a society will never be okay with that. And that's what's really uncomfortable. Connie Cronley is an essayist, writer, and a regular contributor to Studio Tulsa. Her latest book is A Life on Fire, Oklahoma's Kate Barnard. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.